Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 23, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. If you're just tuning in for the first time, TDL, as the show is sometimes referred to as, well, it's a show that's all about educating and inspiring you to live out your documentary filmmaking dreams. I am not here to tell you how to make a career out of documentary filmmaking, but I am also not here to not tell you how to do this. I may be somewhere in between. And that's going to be a big part of what today's topic is all about. Getting creative with ways to make a living while you practice your documentary passions. If we've not met before, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Chris G. Parkhurst and I am the host of The Documentary Life. If we have met before, welcome back. As always, I'm glad to have you with me again as we journey into the ever so magical and certainly sometimes not so magical realms of documentary filmmaking. And speaking of journey, you might remember a couple of episodes ago, me mentioning that my family and I were planning for some pretty big changes in our lives. Namely, we were selling up house and getting ready to spend some time setting up shop in the UK, where Steph's originally from. Well, as I record this episode, I am quite literally two days away from leaving the States for at least a bit of time, if not possibly more. To say that life has been a bit crazy would be a vast understatement. I've had my front yard ripped up with a new sewer line installed. I've had plumbers beneath the crawl space doing who who really ever knows what. I, I've been wrapping up some video work with clients and selling furniture and other things from the house. And Well, I've been trying to figure out the best way to compress what I own into approximately three bags to take with me. It's basically, my cameras and clothes. Feels like old times, I tell you. <laughs> In any case, I'm hoping you'll forgive me if this week's show feels a little bit shorter than some of the others. That being said, it's still going to be a pretty cool episode. I'm excited to share some valuable tools on how to get creative with your sources of income. It's something that, over the years, I've had to develop for myself, but it's also something that so many documentary filmmakers that I know have had to do. It's just a fact of life as a doc lifer. I've said it before on this show, and I think it bears repeating. I know very few people who have actually made their entire livings purely as documentary filmmakers, including yours truly. We doc people are almost always doing some things on the side to help us make our livings, to supplement our incomes, if you will, and there is nothing wrong with that. But before we dive into that part of today's program, I want to take a minute to share an email that I received from a listener recently, a young doc lifer named Sophia. I want to share the email with you. She had a question pertaining to the kind of situation that I think a number of us have or at least will have experienced at some point in time during our filmmaking endeavors. This is what she wrote. 
Hey Chris, I'm an audiovisual student from Costa Rica who produced and edited a documentary I've been working on with three other students. Since the course finished, the project has been left aside. Everyone seems to want to work on it, but the dynamic in the group seems to be kind of harsh. Thing is, as the producer, I am not willing to set the story aside. The story being, the first gay marriage in our country, even though the parties involved might end up in jail for it. Two women who managed to get married in our country because of a mistake in a birth certificate in which homosexual marriage is still illegal despite all of the efforts of many. Right now, they're even reaching out to us because they are deeply interested in continuing the documentary so that we can make a call to action when they end up in court. I don't want to disrespect the director, you know, pushing her to work on the project and, and having it feel like a forced situation. But as the producer, I feel like it's my job to keep pressuring for this to go on. The subject is very important and reflects the reality of most countries in Central America. Being a director, I wanted to ask you for your opinion. Where does the work of a producer to make sure the project is finished stop and the authority of the director to call action whenever they may want to start again, especially when there's zero money involved other than the one in our pockets? Sorry for the rookie questions, but I deeply enjoy how honest and detailed are your answers, stories, and advice in the podcast. I'd like your opinion on the subject. First off, Sophia, great email with a perfectly understandable question, and it's certainly not a rookie one. And more than that, congratulations to you and your colleagues for working on such an important project. You know, I don't push activist filmmaking per se on anyone or stating that only stories that can have, you know, some sort of deep impact, that they're the ones that are worth pursuing. I wouldn't do that. First off, it's very judgmental of me to say something like that. Secondly, you know, what's an interesting or quote-unquote important story to me, it may not be to somebody else. But I do want to recognize that the story that you have described, the first gay marriage in a country where that has never existed, is probably pretty damn cool, if not downright important to many people. And you can count me, Sophia, as one of those people. Now, to your question, which, which may see, initially seem to be about who has the final decision-making calls, whether it be financially or creatively, you know, in a documentary film. Is it the producer or is it the director? And there is truth to this to some extent, but, but, but in the scenario that you are talking about a collaborative effort by a group of you know, your fellow students working on the documentary with zero budget, it's not as cut and dried or straightforward as, say, a feature film, where ultimately you know, the producer most likely calls the shots, including the firing of, of, the, of a director. Bigger budget films with other executive producers and major investors all have a say in this, of course. But it's the producer, while not necessarily calling the creative shots on set, they do have the final say in most matters. Now, this may not be the case with documentary films, often because documentary films are not beholden to larger budgets with executive producers and investors. They're often being produced and directed and generally at least partially funded by the same person. But for the sake of your question, let's say the director and producer are two different people and they don't get along or, or, or they don't see eye to eye on the project for whatever reasons to the point where it's pretty, it becomes pretty apparent that the film will not get made unless one of them goes. Well, I've made mention of this here on the show, I believe it was episode number 17, where I talked about this happening for myself. 
even on more than one occasion. In fact, I had to let go of not one, but two producers and on the same film. It was on my Nepal doc journey to Kathmandu. For two entirely different reasons, it just was not working out between the producers and myself, me being the director. Now, in my case, while it was certainly no small deal asking these producers to leave the project, there also wasn't much that they could say really in rebuttal. They hadn't put their any of their own money into the project, but maybe even more importantly, the film concept, you know, the, the concept itself, it was never theirs to begin with. In fact, they'd been brought onto the film, effectively my film, to help produce it. So while I certainly always respected their position on the dock, always trying to take on board their opinions and suggestions, it was almost inherently understood that Journey to Kathmandu was my film, and therefore I ultimately had the positioning to make you know, final says in regards to it. But again, this is often very different from feature films or commercials where the producer or agency in the case of commercials is going to have final say in their director, which not only includes the hiring, but also, you know, in some cases, the firing. Now, in your case, I, I want to be careful because we're talking about a group of students, all who have already invested their own time into the project, right? And while it sounds like there are different crew positions, including you as the producer and someone else as the director, it still sounds very much like a collaborative project. So that's one thing I would say to keep in mind. It's a delicate situation. And it was unclear, you know, it was unclear to me in your email who came up with the project to begin with, whose concept it was. If it was the director's, you may be out of luck. In other words, if the director brought you and the other crew members onto the project, it's pretty touchy stepping in and trying to move on without the director. That being said, I do feel like whatever you decide to do, you might first try and sit down with this director and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Try and explain the urgency of the project and what it means to the couple who are getting married. Explain what it means to all of the people who have already been involved in the project. That they too, you know, they don't want to see the project just go away. Also, maybe what the broader importance and significance of the project, being the first gay marriage in Costa Rica, what that may mean. Try and explain the sense of urgency involved with getting the film made now as opposed to next month or next year or worse, of course, never. Hopefully, this will give them some other perspective and move them to take action on the project again. However, if this is a case where you and or the crew just aren't getting along with the director, and it's not just the director's concept, and the director doesn't have a bunch of finances tied into the project, then perhaps the entire crew, maybe as a committee, as a committee, needs to make a choice on whether or not to continue the film with or without this director. I'm not recommending a mutiny here, though. I, I do guess that it can sound like that, but I'm at least acknowledging that something must be done, right? There's a definite sense of urgency that I'm hearing from you. You, as well as a number of others, care deeply about this project, and this project needs to happen. Sophia, please let us know how things work out. I, for one, would be very interested, super interested to hear how you approach the situation. And secondly, I can't wait to see how the film turns out. It sounds like a great and important story. I'm going to give you five ways in which you can diversify your income as you live out your documentary dreams. These are five things I've spent a lot of time with myself and believe can go a long way in making you a truly independent filmmaker. 
Because as is the case with any sort of investment portfolio, without diversification, you put yourself at risk of potential financial disaster should your one or two major income sources go away. This nearly happened to me a few years back with a production company here in Portland, Oregon, who'd been hiring me both as an editor and then as a shooter for a number of years quite consistently. They were easily my biggest income source, and they themselves had one really big client. And when one year that client went away for them, well, guess who else had a pretty poor year? Of course, yours truly. Those were some iffy days, especially since we just had our first child and Steph wasn't able to work in the States at that time. I had to learn a hard but ultimately very valuable lesson, which was that I was going to need to diversify not only my clients, but I was going to need to diversify my revenue sources as a whole as well. And while I'm certainly still learning the ropes here, I, I, it's not perfect, I, but I, I have found some different ways to generate income that I think might help you as well. So let's get started. Stock photos and footage. I don't know why more people aren't doing this because the fact of the matter is a lot of people are doing it. I just don't personally know a ton of them, but the ones that are for the most part, they speak pretty highly of it. Why? Well, because when done right, it's a relatively painless and pretty fun way to make a little extra cash on the side. There are a ton of online stock agencies out there, and I'm sure you've heard of most of these, like Pond5 or iStock, or one that I happen to use pretty regularly, which is uh, Shutterstock. I mean, even Adobe, who many of you might already be using through the Adobe Creative Cloud subscription, they got into the game a couple of years back with Adobe Stock. I won't break down the advantages or disadvantages to each one or the, you know, the payout agreements with each one. You can do your research on that yourself. I'll just say this. Once you've gotten through the photos or footage application process for one of these websites, your photos or footage, it's there forever. So if you happen to have a particularly good piece of footage, for example, I have a couple of uh, medical field related clips that consistently bring me in some monies. You can be generating passive income on that clip for quite some time. And the more you arm yourself with knowledge about timing of certain clips, say three months before a major holiday or certain current news events, and the more you know about naming conventions or SEO conventions, the more you learn about what types of images ad agencies around the world are looking for, the more you learn the game basically, the more chance for success you'll have. Now, there are a number of websites and books out there already dedicated to stock footage, but one book that comes to mind is Stock Footage Millionaire by Rob Crocker, who incidentally happens to be based out of Oregon City here in Oregon. In it, uh, you know, Crocker details how he started a local video production company, discovered this new thing called online stock footage, and quickly made this local video company into a full-fledged stock footage-making machine. Crocker literally became a stock footage millionaire by shooting stock during downtimes between corporate video shoots and smaller commercial gigs. He'd take his camera out and often, you know, his children and wife, they'd be the talent. <laughs> and he would minimally, you know, light a scene, shoot it, upload the clips later that night, and then he'd watch the money come into his account. Now, I'm making it sound easier than it actually is, of course. It is an investment of time and resources. You really have to be consistent with your time, and there is some financial investment, whether it be for gear or talent. And the truth is about 85% of what you upload, it barely sells. But you can get a small percentage that looks pretty damn good, and it also makes you money. And often, as I mentioned earlier, it's passive income, so it might keep giving for a while. 
You can always sell stock photos as well. Of course, I do. It's just that the ROI is so much greater with stock footage. I might make, say, 35 cents on on the sale of a photo, but $18 on a clip. It's that great a difference. The last thing I'll say on this subject is that not all stock footage has to be newly created by you, which is something that's really cool. You might have a treasure trove of clips just sitting on years of drives that have long since been forgotten. Think of how many wedding gigs, bar mitzvahs, family videos, outtakes from commercial gigs, travel videos, etc., etc., that are just sitting on drives. You might be able to just call your old drives and make stock footage clips from there. I've done it even with footage on documentary films that I know I'll never use in the actual documentary. So why not make a little money from what you already have? The next item that can not only bring in some extra cash, but can also help you continue to hone your skills as a doc filmmaker is making videos for nonprofits or NGOs. NGOs are non-governmental organizations that are often doing humanitarian work, whether in you know one's own country or overseas in a developing country. We've talked about doing NGO and nonprofit videos in the past on this show. A lot of us documentary filmmakers cut our teeth doing this kind of work. Because of the nature of the work and because it's usually just you doing it, the access can often be pretty open and easy. Now I know what you're thinking, that the NGO video work is generally pretty low paying, so why would it even be included on a list like this? And I, I'd agree that you most likely won't be breaking the bank doing video work for NGOs and nonprofits. However, you will be making something, and that's this. You will be making a short documentary film, and you will be making a little cash. And the thing is, often because of the nature of working with an organization like this, it's kind of understood that because you're putting your time and energy into making something this good and doing, and doing it for pretty cheap, there often isn't a pressing deadline. Oftentimes, you can get the organization to give away some leeway with the timeline of the project. In other words, you can give your time to the videos in between maybe other better paying gigs or part-time work. This is a luxury we don't often have with other paying work. So while the NGO work may not be a huge paycheck, I find that the relatively flexible timeline and the fact that I get to practice my craft on an interesting or meaningful subject, and I am making a little cash, well, it can be a pretty attractive option when I'm looking to you know, supplement income a little bit. Early on in my career, I did some video work for the well-known humanitarian organization Relief International. The timing was pretty good. I was still basically working as a PA, a production assistant, with the occasional shooting gig on the side, but I was really trying to reach out and garner some more film work. Along came this opportunity to create some videos for Relief International in Haiti, of all places, just six months after the major earthquake. At the time, I wasn't working much that particular month. And I was going to have the opportunity to shoot down in Haiti and make a little bit of money. Sure, not a lot of it, but it wasn't nothing. And the cash was definitely going to supplement my income for that month. When we got back to the States, I was given three weeks to edit a couple two-minute videos. For me, that was great. It was perfect because I was able to accept other better paying work that came along during that uh, three weeks. As long as I basically got the videos done and approved within the three weeks, I was good to go. It really was a win-win for both parties. I was able to shoot, direct, and then edit a couple of reel-worthy videos, you know, videos that I could use for my reel, practically on my own time, and they were getting a couple of professional-looking and sounding videos for their organization.
When I first came up with the idea for the Document Your Life podcast, I was hoping to reach out and start connecting with other like-minded individuals and maybe create a community where doc filmmakers could learn from and get inspired by one another. And I wanted to have conversations that weren't just about the technical aspects of documentary filmmaking. I wanted to also be having discussions on what it meant to live the life of a creative, in our case, as doc filmmakers. And to my pleasant surprise and amazement, that is precisely what has happened with both the podcast and our community group. And now, we've expanded upon that idea with the release of Living Your Documentary Life, a program that breaks down the ways in which you can, through the creation of your art, live a sustainable, creative, and fulfilling documentary life. In Living Your Documentary Life, we remove the obstacles that you currently have in your life that are holding you back from making your documentary film, whether that be financial obligations, your immediate relationships, or your mindset and confidence in your abilities. You will gain perspective, build momentum, and create a lifestyle that serves you creating your best documentary filmmaking projects. If this sounds like the kind of doc life that you want to be leading, we'd love to help. Just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and let's get you living and leading your best doc life today. So we're talking about other ways for the filmmaker to diversify their income or to have additional revenue streams. So as they're not dependent upon, you know, one revenue stream and when that goes away, then they're in big trouble. And we just finished up talking about making videos for NGOs and nonprofits. Now, the other side of the NGO video spectrum is the straight up video work that is more for money than the real corporate video. It used to be corporate video was kind of a dirty word in the industry. You didn't want to admit to doing it. Images of badly lit yellow tinted walls in some dark conference room in the basement of some local car sale shop. Well, that's the kind of images that come to mind. You maybe did this work on the side to pay the bills, but you weren't going to be telling people about the work. And certainly not to your colleagues if you were, say, working in the commercial industry or the feature film industry. It was just kind of looked down upon. Like working in the adult film industry and trying to also work in Hollywood at the same time. It was problematic at best, nearly impossible to navigate at worst. But thankfully, this has changed significantly in the past decade. There are now some pretty slick commercial-looking corporate videos that are out there thanks to technology and growing budgets for professional-looking video. The need for social media has also increased the demand for videos for just about any business. And with the digital technology that is growing ever cheaper by the year, the need for better-looking videos, well, that's just going to continue. And the beauty for us is that contrary to the aforementioned NGO work, the corporate video gigs can often be pretty decent paying work. There's a pretty obvious reason for that. Corporations often have a hell of a lot money to work with than a nonprofit does. Bit unfortunate, I know, but it is what it is. Now, the downside to the added financial incentive of doing the corporate video work is that you're you're now beholden to things like corporate branding, culture, vision, et cetera, et cetera, of the company. It ain't about your art any longer. It's about the corporate messaging. That was, of course, what was great about the NGO video work. You often got to employ your creative vision in part, if not wholly. Not really the case with the corporate videos. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get to be creative at all, which was most likely the case back in the those yellow-tinted basement days of you know VHS. Like I said, there are some really sharp and interesting-looking videos being made in the corporate video sector. 
For years, I've done video work for a client like Intel, sometimes in interesting places like Malaysia or China, where the budgets have been decent and the bar has been set pretty high in terms of messaging and overall aesthetic of the videos. Those can actually be really fun to work on. And especially for us doc filmmakers, where often we might be hired because of some of our artistic work that precedes us. In essence, the corporation is hiring you because they, they expect you to bring some art to their corporate messaging. What I'm saying is that you know, while sure you're beholden to the corporation and, and their messaging and their branding, often they're relying on you to push back with some of your artistic wherewithal and your vision. And again, they've got money. So you end up with some good money and maybe even a video that you can use for your reel. Seems like another win-win, right? There is another way that's starting to become a bit more common amongst all us documentary filmmakers who own some gear like cameras or lenses, and that's to rent out your gear. It's not for everybody. First off, by renting out your gear, you won't have instant access to it should something come up. Secondly, well, your gear is at the mercy of someone else's hands. Of course, there are a number of insurance options that you can look into that will help ease the concern of I don't know, someone bouncing your 70 to 200 mil lens off the cement warehouse floor. Um, I've rented my gear out a handful of times over the years, almost exclusively to people that I know well and have worked with, and I've never had any issues. I mean, I have opened up my camera case to keep, to see gear kind of haphazardly put away, but for the most part, people are pretty respectful of camera gear. I've also known colleagues who have made a big camera purchase with the idea of renting out that camera to help you know, defer the costs of it. So they buy the camera that they'd like to say use on their own projects or as an owner operator of the camera with the idea of also paying off the camera by renting it out. There are a few different ways to do this. If you're in tight with any of the rental houses in town, sometimes they'll put your name and gear on a list. So when they've rented out all of their own, say, um, Canon C300 Mark IIs, they'll give you a call and see if your camera is available for rent. They'll take a little cut of the rental since it's their client, and you'll get the but you'll get the majority of that rental. The rental company appears to have an endless supply of camera rental gear, and you get to make some decent cash. We've rented our camera out this way, and it could can be a good way to make about four hundred dollars a day of passive income. I should mention that renting your gear in this fashion through someone else's rental house, it can be a delicate thing. Rental houses aren't in the business of well, giving away business. So be careful how you approach renting your gear through a rental house. Again, you'll probably need to be in tight with the owner of the shop so they don't think you're actively trying to take business from them. Now, the way that I generally make money with our cameras is that I sell myself as an owner-operator of the Canon C300 Mark II. What this essentially enables me to do is I can get hired as a DP or camera op on a given shoot and on top of my rate, I'm adding the rental costs of the camera kit. It can be a pretty great way to go. Now, another way to make money renting your gear out that doesn't force you to promote yourself or try and go through a local rental shop is to do via some services online like borrowlenses.com or lenspro2go.com. You may have already used these services in a rental capacity for yourself. Maybe you needed a particular lens or camera body or a drone for a shoot. You basically got on, online and you reserved the equipment for X amount of days. They send out the gear to you packed in you know, these Pelican-type protective cases. And once you're finished with the rental, you simply ship back at their cost. 
I know a lot of people that rent gear in this fashion, especially if they live in areas that don't necessarily have easy access to rental houses. And the beauty of these website services is that you can sign up to rent out your own gear as well. In fact, there's a newer one out there that I recently came across that practically specializes in this. They're called Parachute.co, and it's spelled without the E. So it's P-A-R-A-C-H-U-T.co. They're based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. You rent, you can rent out your camera lenses and drones through Parachute. Basically, you maintain all membership of all ownership of the gear, but you, in essence, you send the gear to them. They keep in airtight shipping gear as well as keep the gear, you know, professionally cleaned, maintained, and insured. And the cool thing is you can keep track of where the gear is at any time, how much it's making, all through your parachute dashboard. On the consumer end, what's happening is one is paying a monthly fee. They start out at, uh, they have packages that start out at 99 bucks a month. And with that, you can have $750 in gear value out at one time. The highest level of membership is $499 a month, $499 a month, that is, which garners you around $7,500 in gear value. It's a super interesting concept, this parachute.co. And I'm very interested in hearing from anyone out there who's using the service, either as a renter or um, a rentee. Is that even a word, rentee? Maybe I should use lessee or lesser. Anyhow, drop me a line if you've used parachute.co. I'd love to hear more about it. Now, this last bit of way to make a little extra cash is not necessarily film or video related per se, but it's probably the easiest way possible to make some passive income. It's called investing. And I'm not talking about day playing the stock market, which of course is certainly a way to make some money, but it's also a quick way, as you know, to lose money. I'm not going to recommend that to anyone here on the show. That would be like me recommending that you go and make your next documentary film on all of your credit cards. What I'm talking about is a fairly conservative way to make an investment without having to pay any attention to the market at all. You let this particular online company called Betterment to do the work for you. If you're like me, a substantial part of my income, it comes from doing the freelancer contract work, right? That may be the case for many of you out there, whether it's as a, as a freelance camera op or as a carpenter or as a website coder, you're working on a contract basis, which means that you're basically working for yourself. You are your own company in effect, and therefore you have the joy of being responsible for all of your taxes. Now, in the past, what I've basically done is, is I'd take a certain percentage of, of any paycheck and I'd put it aside in a savings account that I don't touch until the end of the year when I do my taxes and, and I need access to that money. Many of you probably do it quarterly, quarterly which I, I probably should, but I, I, don't, I don't. So I'm losing a little bit of money there, no doubt. But my point here is that is that you're putting aside money for your taxes throughout the year and maybe you're putting it in, in a savings account, right, in the bank which is what I was doing until about six or seven years ago when, it, when I realized that this money was just sitting there in a bank account making the bank money and me not even 1% interest. That just felt wrong. Then a friend told me about this this online company that I, that I referred to earlier called Betterment, which basically takes your money and invests it every day based on second-to-second -second, uh, uh, algorithms that they've come up with. So as an experiment, I tried putting aside my tax money, right, the money that was earmarked for taxes for a year, into a Betterment account instead of a bank savings account. 
And then at the end of the year, when it came time for, for me to do my taxes, I would just you know pull that money back out of the Betterment account and, and, and pay my taxes that way. To give you an example, that year I ended up putting aside about 15 grand US dollars. Um, I put that aside for taxes. Do you know what I made on that money that year? About $1,000. Know what I would have made on that 15K if it was sitting in a savings account all year? About 50. That's right, $50. That's just downright wrong. And I didn't do a damn thing. I just put it into a Betterment account and let them work the money for me. The U.S. stock market generally averages around 8% gain in a given year. There are, of course, ups and downs, but, but the 8% is a pretty conservative average. You don't need me to do the math for you. It's pretty obvious, right? Now, Betterment is the online investment service that I know about. I, I'm sure there are others out there, but it's just the one that I've personally been using for a while now. You know, do your own research and see if there's not some way like this that you can be making money on your earmarked taxes, you know, throughout the year. Again, it's this idea of passive income. So there you have it. That's five options, five ideas that you can that you can use to generate some additional income in your life. That's that's this edition of the documentary life. I, I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, when next we get together, I'll be producing this show from the UK. If you're a listener who also lives there, please send me any and all tips that you might have. My email address is chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at b-a-r-a-n-g films.com. Now, before I go, I'd like to give you some idea of some upcoming guests that we're going to be having on the show over the next few months. Founder and curator of the independent filmmaking website, uh, Filmmaker's Process is the name of the website, Robert Hardy. He'll be on the show talking about the best ways that he knows how to live an independent filmmaking life. Doc filmmakers Dash Schlossberg and Lindsay Grazel will be on an upcoming episode of TDL. You might remember back in October I mentioned both of these filmmakers who were wrongfully arrested while covering actions related to the North Dakota Access Pipeline events. In, in fact, I even read a letter that Lindsay had written me declining an invitation to be on the show because at the time she was immersed in legal proceedings that were stemming from very serious charges that had been brought up against her. Well, both Lindsay and Dea will be on in May discussing their cases and how documentary filmmakers and journalists alike should best arm themselves against recent violations of the freedom of the press. I'm also super excited to announce that DSLR and filmmaking gear guru, Philip Bloom, whom probably 99% of you have come to know over the years through his filmmaking blog, well, he's also agreed to be on TDL. And we'll be talking not only about his dream career of, you know, trying out and reviewing every cool piece of camera gear known to man, but we'll also be talking to Philip about his documentary filmmaking experience, a topic that's I feel like has probably been pretty overlooked, but definitely should not be. So yes, lots of good guests to look forward to, and we continue to line them up for this spring and summer, and, and, and I really can't wait to share them with you. If you haven't already or you're new to the show, be sure to go back and check out our back catalog of shows by going to www.thedocumentarylife.com. And don't forget, by going to the website, you can get a free download of my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu. Thanks, everyone, for continuing to support this ever-growing documentary community of ours, and thanks for listening to The Documentary Life. Until next time, I remain your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. We'll see you soon. Don't 
don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. 